Hey, good morning for the few of us who are here. I know they act like it's like a holiday weekend or something going on around here. That's good. Um, just just kind of maybe to reinforce a little bit of the announcements, we are over the next two to three weeks um, having the... Uh, the, preparing for the parent-child uh, dedication, uh, basically a commitment time for parents and the church um, to these little ones. Um, and so that's going to happen uh, June 21st. Um, but between now and then, we're going to be at 4th, 24th. Um, and between now and then, uh, there's just a way, for, easy way for you to sign up. You can just go to the website and sign up there. And there's a few questions that we ask to kind of help better prepare for that service. You'll want to kind of let your parent, your uh, Family, parents, grandparents, everybody know uh, about that week, about that Sunday, so that they could be here for that day. Um, so we're going to be continuing in the book of Acts this morning, um, and we're going to jump right in because we have some ground to cover. Uh, last week, Joey was uh, able to just to kind of, we, we, we caught a glimpse in the book of Acts about how the, the gospel began to, to move outside of the, the center, the epicenter of Jewish culture, which is Jerusalem. Um, and and how how Peter received uh, visions and 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 kind of somewhat of some dreams to kind of know where to go and what to do and and God was being very very clear about what was happening. He was working on a few different fronts to make sure that the gospel actually went to the Gentiles. Um, that's good news for you and I, because uh, if Peter didn't want to do that, or if the church decided that 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 wasn't what they wanted to do, uh, we wouldn't be here today. Um, so it's a good that's good news for us. Um, and so today we're going to see. Um, see this really, really beautiful moment um, in Scripture in the life of the church. And it's not just a, a beautiful moment, but it's a very missional moment uh, in the life of the church, which we'll see today. Uh, and we've been talking about, and we've named the series Missio Day. And I don't even know if we've kind of introduced that yet, but you've kind of been seeing that stamped everywhere. Uh, that, that is the mission of God. We've kind of defined that for you. And that's what the book of Acts kind of shows us, uh, this mission of God. And I want this text today to remind us... Um, as we look through it, that the church isn't a geographical point on a map. Uh, and the church is not some um, address, and it's certainly not a social club. Uh, there's so much more to the church. It's actually um, the center to Missio Day. It's actually the center uh, to, to what God's mission is on earth. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that the church exists for God's mission. Uh, that's, why we, that's why we're here. That's why we exist today. Um, and so today we're going to be introduced to one of the most influential churches in all of history uh, that, that's, that's ever existed. Uh, and to make it a bit more personal, this is the church that has formed my opinion about what church should be. It's formed my opinion about what I would love for Sulphur Community Church to become. This is kind of the model church for us. Uh, so to speak. And so we'll want to kind of key in and pay close attention today. And I wanted to take this opportunity to maybe just highlight a few things about this incredible church that, we, that we're going to see um, so that we might too know how we're going to model after this church, how this will become basically the prototype uh, for, for us. And this is the church at Antioch. Um, we're going to learn a little bit about this. And what, it, what intrigues me most about the church at Antioch is that they weren't so much focused on being missional. They weren't so much focused on um, 
uh, mobilizing people, and they weren't so much focused on doing outreach events and things like that. They were just simply enamored with the person of Jesus Christ. And all of the things that took place, sending missionaries, loving their neighbors, and all of those things were just an overflow of just who, like their, their perception of Jesus, and they're, they're just kind of owning Jesus um, as, as, as their Savior. And so that's what really just kind of encourages me. And so today, I, I, this morning, I want to... Um, I want us to ask God to do the same thing in Sulphur Community Church. I want, to, I want God to, to do the same thing for us in our city, what he's done in the first century with the church at Antioch. Just, just consume us with the person of Jesus Christ. Consume us with the, with the good news of who he is. Uh, not so much about a, th- a list of things to do, but just be with Jesus. Be enamored by Jesus. And let all of these other things become just a natural byproduct of being with Jesus. That's what I hope for for our church. And that's what I think I see here in, with the church at Antioch. Um, and so what was it? What were the, what were the things that, that, that make the church at Antioch one of the most influential local churches in all of history, even up till now? Um, one, of the, one of the things I see in, in the text, if we, we, you're going to be in chapter 11 of Acts, if I hadn't told you we were there yet. Um, but this church at Antioch, they had, this, they had this gospel innovation. They were very creative with the way they handled the gospel. We'll, look, we'll pick up in verse 19. We're going we're gonna to kind of, um, we'll hit around a little bit this morning about, throughout this chapter, but we're going to start in verse 19. And it says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, you remember that happened, Saul was ravaging the churches, Stephen was a a, a martyr in the church for proclaiming Christ, Uh, and they scattered because of this persecution. The church had kind of ran away, and so they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. That's a really important statement. That at this point in their minds... At this point in Peter's mind, at this point in the church's mind, is that the gospel was for Jews only. And it wasn't necessarily for the rest of the world. And so they were still kind of hung up on this. But Jesus had kind of already kind of, he showed them his cards. He already kind of showed them what was going to go down um, in Acts chapter 1. We'll look at all that a little bit later. But the very command that Jesus gave to the church was to go and make disciples of every people group, of every ethnicity, of every nation was the command that he had left for the church. And here we see that the church is just now starting to understand what that means. Last week, for the first time, we see Peter uh, be confronted with the fact that the gospel will be going to the Gentile nation as well, that it's going to go to the other people as well. It's going to go to those people on that side of town as well. It's not just for this part of town. It's for that part of town. And so he, he, uh, he's confronted with that reality. And so to the, this morning, we're going to see some more of that. Up until now, they really hadn't they hadn't fully grasped the idea that Jesus gave them in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, when the Spirit comes and he, and he falls on you, you're going to be my witnesses. And you're not just going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem where all the Jews are concentrated and this should be among the Jewish people, but you're going to be my witnesses in Samaria. You know that place where everybody hates, all the Jewish people hate those kind of people. You're going to be witnesses there. And you're going to be witnesses all throughout Judea. And you're going to go all the way to the ends of the earth with this message. And so they're just now starting to get kind of a glimpse of what that's going to look like uh, by by seeing Gentiles come to know Jesus. And so here we see that these groups of Jesus followers, predominantly Jewish by either race or by culture, they're just kind of being sprinkled out throughout the region right now. They've been scattered because of uh, persecution. They've been kind of going to different places uh, in the region. 
And it says here in the text that they've been speaking the word to no one except Jews. So everywhere they go, they go look for people who smell like them and look like them and talk like them and have the same culture and dress in the same clothes as them. That's the people that they gravitate towards and say, we got good news for the Jewish people. The Messiah has come. And so they're being sprinkled all throughout these regions. And they're only having these gospel conversations with people who are like them. People that they're comfortable with. People that would be readily um, positioned to receive this message. But what happens next is going to break down cultural barriers. What, what happens next uh, is that the name of Jesus gets carried to other people. Those people. Look at verse 20 with me of chapter 11. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so now we're seeing some pretty substantial missional traction taking place now. Now they're kind of starting to make some, have some momentum with the gospel. And it's happening in the third largest city in all of the Roman Empire. This is a heavily populated area. It is a, it is a, a very, very urbanized area in the, in the day. And it's predominantly populated with Gentiles, with a mixture of people, just this smorgasbord of different cultures because it's such an urban area. It's such a crossroads to so many places. The third largest city in all of, all of the Roman Empire has just a, a diverse group of people and this is, this is where they find themselves with this message. And they go to the Hellenists. They say, Hellenists were, were coming to Jesus by the droves thanks to a few, let me just point out, unnamed people. We didn't get their names. So just here's some guys, some regular guys, some regular people who believe in Jesus. They're, they're from this town. And they go over here and they start speaking the gospel to the other people. To, to the Hellenists, these people who are, 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 have, have taken on somewhat of a Greek culture, so to speak. Um, and, and so they're not necessarily Jews. And, and now they're coming to know Jesus. They would, uh, people who were, who were willing to practice biblical, um, gospel-centered innovation by, by going to people who, who were not like them, who were going to people um, who, who, were, who were all about Jesus and wanted other people to know about Jesus. Like that's where they are now, talking to these people. And so I want to be very uh, careful and I want to be very specific when I say gospel-centered innovation. And so we're kind of highlighting one of the marks of the church at Antioch, and they had gospel innovation. They were very creative. They were going to the other people and figuring out how to communicate the gospel to them. And I say gospel-centered innovation so that you don't hear me say, change the message to make it relevant, because that's not what they did. And I want to make sure that you know that it's gospel-centered Innovation. They're being creative without losing the, the impact um, of, of the message. Antioch was this extremely diverse culture. You know that just by, by, the, by who, who we're seeing here, who we're talking to. And it was this melting pot of, of, of influences. And what wasn't happening, what wasn't going on was that the believers were, were kind of, they were trying to tweak the, or, or water down the message or remove parts of the gospel that might be offensive in an effort to to maybe make it a little bit more culturally relevant, right? And that's not so far-fetched, is it? Don't we try to do the same thing today? Like, man, like, here's the gospel, here's how I see it, but if I go to this particular person with it, if I go to this person who has a lifestyle like this, or a person who's doing these types of things, that part of the gospel is going to be really, really offensive, and so maybe I won't go there just yet. That's not what they were doing. It was gospel-centered creativity. It was gospel-centered innovation. 
And, and basically what they went with is Jesus. They just preached Jesus. That's what the text says. They just preached the Lord Jesus, preached him fully, all of him. They preached him as the king. And when you go to a place in the Roman Empire and say Jesus is king, that's quite offensive to Rome. And if you go to a, a place and you preach Jesus as God in the flesh, well, that's quite offensive to Greeks. And so they're going to all of these people and they're saying these things about Jesus that are very offensive, that could have them killed. And they're, they're going with it anyway. And as they remain faithful to the, to the whole gospel, to the, to the totality of the gospel, the gospel does what it is able to do. It transforms the hearts of hearers. It makes cold hearts come to life. That's what the gospel does. It's not in the way we present the gospel. It's not uh, in how we make it culturally relevant in different ways. It's just preaching the gospel, and it has its power to do what it's designed to do, to go and to, to transform hearts and transform lives. And it's real easy for you and I to look at our community and be tempted to modify the gospel. It's very, it's very t uh, uh, tempting to be able to want to, to do that. Like, okay, how can, I, how can I share my faith? How can I share the gospel with my atheist friend or my agnostic friend? Like, how do I, how do I go there? Is there some things about the gospel that I need to kind of, some, some buttons I need to push or some knobs I need to turn to make it just right for that person? Or what about that person uh, who's just been burned by religion? How do I, how I, how do I carry the, the name of Jesus to that person without them just kind of totally checking out or totally just kind of throwing up a wall? Is it some things that I can do to the gospel to, to modify it or mold it in a way that they would receive it? That's the temptation. That's, that's easy for us to go, to, to that place to go. And the temptation would become, how can, I, how can I change the gospel in a way that meets them? Like, that's the question that we want to ask. And that's a bad question to ask. We should never be at a place where we're trying to figure out how to manipulate the gospel so that it's more palatable for people to receive. The gospel is going to do what the gospel is going to do. And it is offensive. It is quite offensive. It was offensive to me before I came to know Jesus Christ. It was offensive to many of you who know Jesus. Before you came, before you placed your faith in Jesus, there was things about the gospel that just came up against you that you did not like. And that's just the reality. And that's what, how the gospel, um, that's how the gospel works. But, the, but the, the thing I want to point out is like you don't have to do anything to make the gospel relevant. The gospel is already relevant to all of mankind. You don't have to try to do anything to make it relevant to people. It's, re it's, it's relevant in itself to everyone. It's not watering down the message. So when we say we want to be about a church who, who's like the church at Antioch, one of the things that they did where they were, they were very innovative with the way they carried the gospel. And so when we say we want to do that, we're not saying water down the message of Jesus. Gospel innovation is the willingness to, to sit down and to think for just a second about all the barriers, all the walls that, that exist that keep people from meeting Jesus, right? And that, that's, that's being creative. And how do, we, how do we go into those places? How do we, how do we go into those circles of people and, and remove those obstacles so that people can experience the good news of Jesus, that they can be connected with Jesus? So we get creative with how we do things. It's Everything that we do outside of these walls, all of the serve projects that we do, all of the, the block party events, and all of the, the things that go on here at this community center are creative ways for us to, to give people access to the total gospel, to the full gospel. That's, that's what we're trying to do. It's creatively seeking ways to reflect Jesus in his fullness 
about all, reflect him, him completely. And the gospel innovation, it doesn't mean that we're going to make it progressive. It doesn't mean that we're going to try to make the gospel cool. Uh, Antioch was this, this hotbed for entertainment. Remember, it's a very diverse urban culture. And so the, it was just loads of entertainment uh, in, in this city. And so it would have been easy for these earlier followers of Jesus to kind of go into the city and, and just say, you know what, we need, we need to come up with some ways to maybe add some spice to the gospel. To, to kind of to kind of make it in a way that we, we you know it kind of looks like what they're what they're what what entertains this city and let's try to make the gospel in a way that's entertaining in that in that same way and they didn't do that they just went in and they just preached Jesus all of Jesus the whole gospel and so we live in this weird moment in our culture and in our society right now where man the church is just doing some really dumb things in the name of relevancy. Like just stupid things. Pastors repelling from ceilings, pyrotechnics, people driving around on motorcycles, um, lasers, more lasers in the room than Star Wars, just some dumb stuff. And all in the name of trying to be relevant. And the gospel is already relevant. And the more the church tries to outdo the entertainment industry, the more ridiculous we become. And that's just the reality. And so we're, we're taking our marks from the most influential church and all of history, and they just went and preached Jesus in creative ways, but never to water down the message, never to take something away, or never to put something as a higher priority than the good news of Jesus. For these believers, it was going to people who didn't know Jesus, finding people who didn't know Jesus, telling them about Jesus in a language that they can understand so that they could hear Jesus, and they went to those places where these people gathered. Right, And so their, their creativity consists of identifying where do people who don't know Jesus gather. We're going to go there, and we're going to tell them about Jesus in a way that they can understand. That was their strategy. And that was a very, very progressive way in this first century church. Very creative way to go and, get, and, and carry the gospel to places outside of Jerusalem. Outside of the, the, the collection of God's people. And so how can Sulphur Community Church practice gospel innovation? How can we be creative about getting the gospel to people who need the gospel so, so desperately? Well, here it is. Meet people where they are, right? That's what we see in the text. They go where the people are. And, and they, don't, they don't sit back and say, well, those people need to be kind of about here before we're going to engage. That's not, they didn't require them to be in a certain place before the church would engage. They went wherever they were. Wherever the people gathered, that's where they went. So if we're going to be a church that's going to get creative about the gospel, we're going to need to go where the people are. And so this is not where the people are, right? This is where we gather from week to week, but the people are out there. And so if we're going to get creative with the gospel, if we want to make an impact in the community and in the city and in the world, uh, one of the things that we're going to have to get serious about is getting creative about how do we get the gospel to people who don't know Jesus, that's a, that's a very basic question to ask, but one that's completely ignored most times. And we're not going to ask that question because we're afraid Jesus might give us an answer. And then we're held liable to obey. And so let's just ignore the fact that that's something that we probably need to be about. But they also went and they spoke words to them that they could understand. 
They went and spoke in their language. So they weren't out there trying to impress them with all of their, their spiritual intellectual language. They weren't using all these big theological words to try to entertain them or to impress them. And they weren't trying to, to go at them with this long list of big words that only uh, uh, PhD students in seminary can understand. Like they're not going with that. They're going to find languages that are familiar and they're speaking in those languages. You know how you, know how you learn the language of a community? You be in the community. You be in that circle of people. Wherever that place is where they gather is how you're going to learn the language and learn the culture. And that's how they need to hear the gospel in their language. And honestly, when we use stuff like that, when we kind of try to be impressed, that's just pride-soaked intelligence is all that is. And there's no place for that in the community. There's no place for... People just need Jesus. We don't need to kind of put up these other barriers, right? Words that they can understand. They went to places where the people were, and they spoke to them in words that they could understand. And so here's the deal. Move out of the Christian bubble. Move out of the Christian circle and realize that there are people in this community, in whatever community you come from, there are people there. There are people on your campus. There are people in your jobs that have questions about purpose. They have questions about eternity. And it's up to you and it's up to me to fight against the temptation to spend all of our time in this circle. This is a great temptation that we all kind of give ourselves over to. And we have to fight against that. This is my people. This is what's comfortable for me. I know the language of these people. I know the things to say that would spark some intellect among these people. But we have to fight against that. That's what, that's what was going on to, to kind of step outside of these Christian circles so that we're aware of the city around us, that we're aware of the neighborhood around us. And so the church at Antioch was innovative with the gospel, and they took risk, man. They took risk, and they reaped the reward for their risk. Look at verse 20. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke with the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so here are these guys who are in Antioch. Why? They're in Antioch because they've been running for their lives for proclaiming this message. Because they were scattered from Jerusalem for this message of Jesus Christ. And what's the first thing they do when they get to the next town? They do it all over again. There's great risk involved. And here we see them taking that same risk to be persecuted the way that they were persecuted that sent them, that drove them to Antioch. So they haven't left that, right? They haven't left the message in Jerusalem. And they're also taking risks about losing their places in the Jerusalem church. Right? I just want to kind of point your attention maybe to the first part of chapter 11. We didn't read that just yet. Um, but verse 1, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. That's what we learned last week. That's what Joey uh, walked us through in the chapter before, that, that Peter went to Cornelius' house and, and Gentiles started uh, being saved because of the gospel being preached. Um, and so here's what they say. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, where you know, all the you know, uh, Jews were, were concentrated, and all the people who felt like they were uh, privileged with the gospel and no one else was, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? So that was, <laughs> that was their response on hearing that the gospel had gone to Gentiles. Wait a minute, you did what? You went into their house... You ate with these people? And then Peter began to explain to them in the order in which the, the entire chapter before, bit by bit, here's how it went down. 
And we won't read all through that. Go back. There's a whole sermon on that from last week. Go back and listen to that. But just here's exactly what went down. And at the end of him kind of giving the story, it's like, well, they, okay, then they, they received Jesus. But know that at the same time, these people are in Antioch. And they're preaching the good news of Jesus. They're preaching the gospel, knowing that the, the circumcision party, the Judaizers who are back in Jerusalem, are gonna ha- they're going to have problems with this. Like, this is Gentile people. They're going to have beef with, with us when we do this. And so they didn't really, you know, the, 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 the circumcision party or, the, or the, the Jews there in Jerusalem, they didn't see the gospel going to, to the Gentiles as, as really a priority. That wasn't kind of their priority. And God forbid Gentiles be received into the church without kind of adapting some Jewish customs. God forbid that happen. And honestly, so that, you look at that text in, in, in the verse, first part of chapter 11, and what you're seeing is people who are saying, oh no, they're coming with us. They're, they're not afraid that the gospel is going and, and saving Gentiles. What they're afraid of is they're fixing to have to do life with Gentiles. That's what, that's what they're so reserved about. And so here we have these early Christians preaching the gospel to the Gentiles at the risk of upsetting the church in Jerusalem, at the risk of saying, you're not allowed back in here anymore. They don't know, they don't know what's just happened with Peter and Cornelius and all this. They, all these things are happening at the same time. And then look what happens when they risk it all in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we take great risks. The church at Antioch was willing, to, willing to, the believers there were willing to take risks. The risk of being persecuted even further, risk of even losing their place in the church. And the reward, the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. There has never, listen to me, definitive word, there has never been a moment in, in the history of the church where a great spread of the gospel awakening, where an awakening of the gospel, where the gospel spread, where it did not come with a massive amount of risk. The, the, every time you see the spread of the gospel take place in all of history, it was at great cost. It was at great risk to the people who were carrying the message. But so was the reward. And here we are. It's all for community church. You want to make a difference in this community? You want to make a difference in this world? We have to be creative with the way we communicate the gospel, and we have to be willing to risk it all. Risk our lives if that's what it takes, because Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it, and he honors the risk, and he moves in and out of our risk-taking. And so is anyone willing to risk? Is anyone willing to take the risk for the sake of the gospel? That's a question we need to leave here with today. Are you, are you ready to risk it all for the gospel? And if you're not, and Jesus would say, you cannot be my disciple. That's what he would say in the gospels. You want to come and follow me? It's going to cost you everything. Maybe even your life. And if you're willing to risk it, you can come along. So you're willing, teachers, are you willing to spend time at school, with your students, encouraging them in the gospel, even if it meant costing you your job. That's what we're talking about here. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do that, knowing that Jesus would honor that and that he would move in that circumstance, and you might be unemployed because of what you've done? Is it worth it? Is the gospel worth it to you, or is your job worth more than the gospel? 
Are you willing to spend intentional time with the person whose lifestyle is completely rejected and condemned by the church, even if it means the church completely misunderstanding you and saying, who, are, who, who is that you're hanging out with? Are you willing to risk that? Because guess what? That's what these guys are doing. That's what they're doing in the text. They're hanging out with the people that the church would say, not those people. They're condemned. They have this kind of lifestyle about them. They're idolaters. They're, they're tied up in all sorts of sinful life. And so not them. Are you willing to risk it for that? Are you willing to risk being thought of as, as, as someone else from the church in order to love people to Jesus with the gospel? Every risk, every risk taken in obedience is worth it. It's worth it. And so they were risk takers. And they were devoted to the word. And they were devoted to the spirit of God. The word of God was central to this, this group of people in Antioch. Look at verse 22 with me. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many uh, people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas would show up. And there's all these brand new Christians. All these new believers. None of them have grown up in church. None of them know all the language. None of them know all the, the moves to make for, to be a good Christian. They're all brand new. And they're all from pagan backgrounds. And they're all just trying to figure out how to do this new life. They're just trying to figure it all out. And so you can imagine how much of that baggage kind of comes in with them when they're trying to figure out how to express their, their new life with Jesus. And here they are. And he would say, the way to do this, the way to walk with Jesus. So guys, discipleship 101, we're going to have a class. Everybody sit around. I'm going to tell you how to figure out how to do this whole life with Jesus. He says, be faithful to the Lord. That means respond to Jesus in obedience. That's what he's basically saying. Obey the Lord. Be faithful to the Lord Jesus. And make your whole life about the gospel. Make everything about your life center on the gospel. And so that's discipleship 101. And so I don't know if you've ever gone through any type of discipleship before, but you just got some. Be obedient to Jesus and make your whole life about the gospel. That's what the instructions were that Barnabas gave these new believers. But how do you pull this off when you don't know a thing about God? Like, how do you, okay, I hear you, Blake, but how do I know what to do? I have no idea what God is like. I have no idea what God's will is. And so you're telling me to be faithful to what? I don't know who he is or what his will is. And so how do you do that? The answer is you can't. You don't. You have to understand before you can act, right? And so that's, that's where they are right now. And so what do you do if you're discipling a group of people like this? Verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I'm going to look for somebody who knows something, man. I'm going to, I, I need some help. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so what do you do when you walk with someone through their conversion who hasn't a clue about God? What's your move? Well, if you're Barnabas, you reach out to any decent Bible teacher you might know. You consider your circle and say, well, who knows the Bible? Well, if you got a Saul in your circle, then you want to reach out to him. He kind of knows a thing or two about Scripture. Um, and, and, and if you don't have someone like Saul, then you do the best you, you can do what you got. 
Whatever you've learned so far is what you communicate to those people. That's called discipleship. And you don't ever stop growing as a disciple maker, and nor does, nor does that person who is being discipled. And so where do you start today? If you have no clue where to start with a new believer today, just take them this message right here and start here. You learn this today and start there. That's disciple making. And you sit with them. And if it takes a year, if it takes 10 years, you sit with them and disciple them with the word of God. That's what they did with this group. And these people had a deep love for and a commitment to the word of God. They were devoted to the Word of God. And not only a love for the Word of God, but a deep love for the Spirit of God. Look at verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. All right, so my charismatic friends, you can start to get a little excited now. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit. So he just got up and started speaking by the Spirit. That's, hold on. That there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And I'm just going to kind of jump into another chapter for just a minute because it's going to kind of help us. But thir chapter 13, and, uh, uh, two chapters over, verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. The Antioch church was a unique church, and no other church was quite like this one. This one was kind of different. This was a gathering of people. They're not only devoted to the, to the Word of God, but they, they have a passionate devotion to the pursuit of God, the Holy Spirit, who wrote the Word, who ultimately teaches the Word and gives gifts to the church for the work of the ministry. They had a devotion to the Spirit of God as well. And in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and there were, there were teachers. And it's often quite difficult to get these two in the same room together, much less function together. Right, because you have you have your 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 one that's kind of elevated above the other, um, and 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 a healthy balance of these would be God's spirit and God's word working together in unison. That's a beautiful thing. And so, it really you can come in here today and experience maybe one preference to this than the other, and go to another church this morning and say, you know what, they're way over here when it comes to the gifts and the Holy Spirit. And you come over here, and there's just and this is all word and, and, and teaching is all this is. And the and the church at Antioch had prophets and teachers. They had a good, healthy balance of. Both. And I want us to be a church of people who, for some, you get frustrated at how much attention we give to the Bible. You, that you, you're always, man, they're always about the Word. And they're always about teaching the Word and, and, and how most of the time together is just centered on the Word. I want you to be a person who kind of gets frustrated with that a little bit. And I want for others of us who love reading Augustine's Confessions and, and Calvin's Institutes and Systematic Theologies, I want you to be surrounded by people. I want you to be consumed with people who are pushing you beyond your intellectual Christianity to experience God the Holy Spirit. That's a healthy balance of both. And we need that in this church. We need that in this church. This is a place where no one is comfortable but everyone is growing, and that's what we want. And so the church at Antioch was devoted to these two things, had a healthy balance of these two things. And one of the beautiful things, they had a, they had a diverse and a healthy leadership team. And I just want to hang out just for a, a few minutes in chapter 13 where I just read in that verse, which says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What a beautiful text to read today. And this group was diverse in number. There was a great diversity. They didn't have this triangle organizational chart where one pastor or one bishop was just kind of at the point, at the apex. That's not how they were structured. We see team leadership where six different people are named just in this text who are shepherding the people, who are providing oversight for the ministry there at Antioch. This is the kind of leadership that permeates throughout the entire New Testament. All of the New Testament reflects this kind of leadership. It, the scripture would say that Paul would go from city to city, planning churches and appointing elders, plural, in every city. There is not one place in the New Testament where you're going to go and find a one-man show kind of leadership in the church. Not, not one place in the New Testament. So you understand why we're led the way we are today. We want to be about a New Testament church, and so we're going to have diverse, multiple pastors and shepherds and deacons and leaders in our church. Because it's good for us. It was, it was very good for the first century church, the most influential church in all of history. And so every church in the New Testament had a team of people who were qual called and qualified to, to shepherd the people of God. And I can't imagine this church being who we are without this kind of leadership. If all of this leadership centered on one of us, it wouldn't be what it is. And so we need this kind of leadership. And so they were diverse, and they were diverse in their giftedness. There were prophets, and there were teachers. So they had a, a, a full gamut of, of, of leadership. And it's, it's imperative for us and for this church that we don't strive for one particular gift. Like, we don't work hard to try to be gifted in just this one area. Honestly, like, we want to be about a church who's kind of mixed up with a whole bunch of gifts because that's what we see in Scripture as a means to build up the body of Christ. And so we want to be about that. Uh, and in fact, I would go so far to say is that we are incomplete without having a wide variety of giftedness in this church. Like we're just kind of lame and a little crippled without it. And so we, we want to seek God for all the ways that people are gifted, all the ways that he's wired them uh, to come help lead this thing and be part of the body because that's what makes us complete. They were culturally diverse. Barnabas was this Jewish man. He was from Cyprus. And this guy oozed encouragement. That was his gift. His name was Barnabas meant son of encouragement. And you see throughout scripture, he was the first one to kind of connect with Saul and say, hey, let's do this thing. He was the first one to kind of go to the church leaders and say, no, man, he's cool. Like he's not going to chop your head off today. He, he's kind of changed. He met Jesus. He would, he would be later on, he would try to encourage Paul, even himself, who, who wasn't quite as encouraging as, as Barnabas, whenever, whenever Barnabas and Saul were getting ready to split ways, they were talking about using John Mark as, as a helper to come along on the, on the mission field with him. And Paul was like, no, no, he bailed on us last time. But Barnabas was there and said, no, no, he's, he's a good dude, man. He needs to come with us. He's helpful. We need him. And so he's an encouragement that's his background. He's a Jewish man from Cyprus. Saul was this unique thing uh, in that he was a Jewish man from, from Tarsus with a Roman citizenship who was a student in Greek culture. And so he was just kind of like this spiritual mutt almost. He had all these kinds of different uh, giftedness. He's not Barnabas by any means. And so as you see where they need these two types of people at least. Simon called Niger. Niger is a Latin word for black. This is an African man. He has... He has zero context with Jewish culture, and so he's coming from a totally different place. 
Lucius of Cyrene, this is modern-day Libya. Cyrene is modern-day Libya, what we know of, know of today. So he's coming from a totally different place, a totally different culture. Manan, this lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, this guy probably grew up with a silver spoon in his mouth. Lifelong friends to the Herods, to, to, to the boys, to the ones who kind of ran everything from a Jewish aspect. Uh, he probably grew up alongside those people in the courts, so he was probably well-cultured, probably received the best education, probably very influential in the church at Antioch. And so there's just this mixture of people, this diverse leadership that's coming together, and they all have different backgrounds and different cultures and ethnicities, and they're all coming together. That's what was making the church so strong. That's what was making the church so strong. And I say all this to say, to, or to ask the question, really, what do these guys have in common? Absolutely nothing apart from Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that, that has them has any commonality. Apart from them, these guys wouldn't be hanging out with one another. They wouldn't kind of be going over to one another's house and having cookouts. They're different people altogether. But Jesus is enough to make them brothers. He's an, they, he is enough to make them brothers and enough to make them friends. And if we're going to reach a diverse community as a church, you look at the community and you look at the diversity in this community, if we want to reach them, we have to have diverse leadership. This does not, this will not be a one-man show. It can't be a one-man show. It has to be diverse. We need ethnic diversity in our leadership because our community is ethnically diverse. We need leaders who understand the business leaders in our community in an effort to reach and serve that group. We need leaders who are, who are familiar, who know the complexities of street life and have experienced the grit of this kind of living to reach that group of people. We need this kind of diversity. This was a healthy group. They were a diverse group and they were healthy. Chapter 13, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So these leaders, let me, let me tell you this, they're not perfect. These leaders were not perfect. There's no such thing as a sinless leader. There's no such thing as a sinless pastor. There's no such thing as a sinless priest, and there's no such thing as a sinless pope. And so I'm just going to lay that out for you. There's not one man on earth who is without sin. Not one. Or woman. But these leaders are completely devoted to Jesus. They are completely sold out to Jesus. They are dependent on the Spirit. They are led by grace, and they are eager to obey God. That's, that's their attributes. That's the thing that makes them uh, healthy, is that they're devoted to Jesus, number one, first and foremost. That their life is all about Jesus. They walk by the Spirit. They understand grace. And they strive for obedience. And so this is the kind of leadership we need in this church. It's the kind of leadership you need in any church. Who love Jesus, first and foremost who repent of sin, who loves the people of God, who would say yes to Jesus whenever he commands us to go wherever that might be or whenever that might be. Be willing to say yes. And who is willing to send our best and brightest if that's what Jesus asks us to do. That's what makes leadership healthy. And that's what this church needs. And so let me speak maybe just to the church family members for just a second. I'm going to wrap up here, but I just maybe want to talk to you for just a second. Pray for the leaders of this church. It is, it is pathetic how human we are. 
and how sinful we are. It's pathetic. We are sinful and we are weak and we are prone to wonder, every one of us. And we need the gospel as bad as anyone else in the room needs the gospel. God is doing some amazing things in this church. And God is taking this church into some amazing places in the world. And I don't want our foolishness to take a side street to wherever God's taking this church. And so you need to pray for your leadership. Pray that our hearts won't grow cold. Pray that we don't forget that Jesus is actually our lead pastor. We're following him. So would you pray for your leaders? Because all of these things are very, very possible. All of these things are very, very prone to happen. And so we need prayer. Your church leadership needs prayer. And then the church at Antioch, man, was just ridiculously generous. They were like back to chapter 11. Verse 27, Agabus prophesied that there was going to be a famine coming, and look what happens. Here's how they respond. So the disciples determined, I love that word, determined. They determined everyone according to his ability, right? And so not everybody needs to ante up this much. According to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so the church at Antioch, they hear about their brothers and sisters in need, and every one of them determined according to their ability, what they were able to sacrificially give, how they were going to be able to participate. Some were able to give a tremendous amount. Some were able to give only a a few spare coins. And in the end, it all mattered. Every last cent mattered. And I want this church to be a church that grows more reckless in our gospel-driven generosity. We need to be a church who's just completely and ridiculously generous. I want us to be aggressive in our pursuit of giving away the things that we need to give away to plant churches and to plant resources throughout our communities. Whatever it takes. I want our community to know that this church believes Jesus. And one way that they can see that is in our generosity how we love this community well, how we serve this community well, that's a testimony of how much we love Jesus. And I want our community to know that this church loves Jesus. And so let's give away everything we can to follow Jesus in radical generosity as a church. Let's do that, whatever it takes. The church at Antioch was not only generous with their finances and with their resources, but did you see what happened? They were generous with their leaders. Right? The Spirit of God just came on them and said, hey, pick out the best two in the circle, the best two in the, in the group, send them. And they was like, okay, these are the ones, send them. Quickly generous with their best leaders to go and plant churches in other cities. So if we want to reflect the most influential church in all of history, if we want to be about a church who's going to make a difference in the community at all, We have to be creative with the way we communicate the gospel. We have to be willing to take risk, even if it means risking it all. Be fully devoted and consumed to the Word of God and to the Spirit's leading. Always being mindful of where the Spirit would carry us. Pray for and desire diverse leadership. Like that's something that we've been praying for since day one. It's like, God, diversify who we are as a church by diversifying our leaders. 
Make our leaders look different and talk different and know different cultures and, and all that. We, that's what kind of leadership we want. So desire and pray for that and grow in our generosity together. That's how we're going to make a difference in the community and in the world because that's the church at Antioch. Those were some key things about them that made a huge difference. So would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you this morning and we thank you uh, God, that you would give us a, the privilege of gathering around your word through song and through the scriptures. Father, we pray that, um, God, the, 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 the text this morning would um, enlighten us. Father, that we don't have to strategize a whole lot to know how to make a difference in the world. You've kind of given us some some key strategies on what it's going to take to make a difference in this world. And so, Father, we pray now, um, would you begin to make us into a, a church like Antioch where we, um, we are devoted to and love the good news of Jesus. Because, Father, for so many in this community and so many in this world, it's just not good news. And, Father, forgive us whenever we've haphazardly communicated it in a way that doesn't sound good news to them. God, teach us and show us creative ways, innovative ways to carry the gospel message to those who are far from you this morning, to those who are far from you in our circles that we spend our time. God, would you give us the boldness and the power to take whatever risk you would call us to, knowing that, um, that in the end, Father, if, if you call us to it, it's not a risk at all. And so help us to understand and embrace the reality of your sovereign hand and working all things to the glory of your name and the good of those who follow you. And so we're asking now, Father, make us brave and make us bold and how we reflect Jesus to these neighborhoods around us and to the nations. Father, we pray for our leadership in this, in this church. Would you continue to grow the current leadership and would you continue to multiply? God, give us leaders that we're missing in this church. Raise up leaders from among us in this church who we need, Father, so desperately to help shepherd us, to help us reach people with the gospel, to help remove barriers and help connect people who need to hear about Jesus and know Jesus. Father, would you, would you give us leaders to help shape us into a church who would be all about that? And Father, at the end of the day, we don't own anything, and so everything has been given to us to steward. And so let that fuel our generosity as a church. whether it be sending people to plant churches, whether it be to invest in this community with different resources, whatever it takes. Father, what we have is yours and our life is yours. And so would you make us about your business? Would you make us about your kingdom? And when the world looks at Sulphur Community Church, Father, we pray 
that they would see a people who are just consumed with Jesus in the way we in the way we love and in the way we serve. And we ask these things in your son's holy name. Amen.